0: hope you're enjoying this global cooling because <laughs> they they gave up on global warming a while ago then they went into global cooling so I don't think they're right on that either but let's open with a prayer of prayer <clears throat> father we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word grateful for the fact that Jesus the Son of God, 2,000 years ago, stepped out of eternity into time to fix a problem that we couldn't fix on our own. And we, as your people, gather today on the first day of the week, which is the day of the week that Christ resurrected, to celebrate him as members of your church. I do pray, Lord, that you'll be with us as we look into your word, both in this hour, and in the hour that follows, even walking down the hall, seeing all of the classrooms filled with children, um, I pray you'll be with all of those classes and everything that happens here at Sugarland Bible Church, from beginning to end. We are grateful, Lord, for the ministry of illumination, whereby the Holy Spirit takes what was revealed. 2000 years ago in scripture and applies it to our lives. And so to prepare ourselves for that ministry, Lord, we're going to take a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you not to restore position, which is eternal, but to restore broken fellowship if need be. We are grateful, Lord, for your comprehensive provision for us. We're grateful for 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do ask, Lord, that the Spirit of God might cause us to leave this place today, change people. We ask for salvations. We ask for new insights. Um, we ask for new relationships or healthy relationships. And we just pray that everything would be done today in that account. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. All right. Well, if you guys could kindly locate the book of Second Thessalonians. chapter 2 and verse 3, um, we're moving into a section of Second Thessalonians that we're going to have to camp on for a few weeks, maybe two or three weeks. Last time I said that, it took two or three months, so... But it's right there in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, um, where Paul writes, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, uh, Greek noun there is apostasia, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, um, the son of destruction. So you remember the context of 2 Thessalonians. Paul had planted the church church there on his second missionary journey in Thessalonica and unbelieving Jews had uh, uh forced Paul out of Thessalonica ultimately down the 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 circle below into Corinth. And then the crowd that persecuted Paul turned on Paul's flock. And they thought, you know, a lot of different things. They were confused. So Paul writes two letters from them, almost back to back, probably six months to a year, no more between each letter, to his new flock, his struggling flock there, In Thessalonica, he writes to them probably, again, six months to a year after he planted the church, helping them with their theological issues. So you're dealing with a group of people that had no Bible yet, at least no New Testament. And they had no systematic theology. (laughs) Uh, They had no prophecy charts. (laughs) Um, And so they were struggling with eschatological issues, prophetic issues. One of the issues they were dealing with is, well, Paul, you taught us about a rapture, but some of our folks have died since you left. What's going to happen to them? So Paul, in the first letter, explains how the dead in Christ will rise first. And then um, another issue that came up is... They received a forged letter. So what I'm giving you here, verses 1 and 2, is the problem that Paul is dealing with. And after he explains the problem, verses 1 and 2, he will explain the prerequisites. So what's the problem, verses 1 and 2? And then after he deals with the problem, verses 3 through 12, he'll deal with the prerequisites. But the problem is right there in the prior verse, verse 2, which we covered last time. Where Paul writes that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now last time we talked about the day of the Lord, and here when Paul talks about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the seven-year tribulation period. Um, In Scripture, if you go back to the first reference today, because this is the day of the Lord, the first reference today in the Bible is Genesis 1 verse 5, where it says there was evening and then there was morning. So I think Paul's using that same concept. He, The day of the Lord is the evening, the seven-year tribulation period, followed by the morning, the breaking forth of the dawn, which would be the coming of the kingdom. And these folks had received a forged letter telling them that they were actually in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has started. So you can see how confused they were because Paul, when he was with them on the second missionary journey and when he wrote the first letter to them, told them that they would be exempted from the day of the Lord. So he taught them that you're in the church age and the church age will end with the rapture. And after the rapture takes place, then the day of the Lord will unfold. I mean, you can see that chronology really clear when you study First Thessalonians because he talks about the rapture, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And then after he deals with that, then he deals with the day of the Lord in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. So, I mean, the last time I checked, chapter 4 comes before chapter 5. I know that's really deeply profound to hear stuff like that. But just pay attention to the chronology because chapter 4, rapture, chapter 5, day of the Lord. So he had taught them through that tool and many others that they would not be in the day of the Lord. The problem is they just got a forged letter that says, no, you're in the day of the Lord. And when they received this, they were, you see it there at the beginning of verse 2, shaken, which is the same word used for an earthquake in Acts 16. So a theological earthquake had gone off because Paul said, you're not going to be in the tribulation period. And then all of a sudden they got this forged letter allegedly from him saying, you're in the tribulation period. And so it was causing a lot of confusion. And you throw into the mix that they were new Christians. You throw into the mix that they were being persecuted. And you throw into the mix that they had no New Testament yet. And you throw into the mix that their apostle, their mentor, their founder had left. Not because they really wanted to, but he was forced out. And you can see why this uh, group of people was thrown into a total state of uh, confusion. And you can see why when you go to the end of Second Thessalonians, and you look at chapter 3 just for a second, and you look at verse 17, second to last verse in the book, the chapter in the book, And where Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is my distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So why would he say something like that? Because they had fallen into deception because of a forgery. So when Paul writes this letter, he goes, no more, don't fall for any more forgeries. This is my, you know, writing style. And when you go back to verse two of chapter two, he says, so that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, either uh, by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And then in verse three, he says, let no one in any way deceive you. You can see how they were deceived. So they thought they were in the tribulation period when Paul taught them the opposite. And by the way, if Paul was wrong on this, then you might as well just throw out everything Paul ever said. (laughs) Uh, So Paul's own credibility is at stake. And the fact that they were shaken proves that Paul had taught them pre-tribulationalism, which is the idea that they'd be removed from the earth before the tribulation starts. Because if he had taught them, you're going to go through it or you're going to be raptured out at the end of it, they wouldn't be upset. They would be like, thumbs up, you know, this is what Paul said would happen. So the very fact that they're shaken proves that he taught them pre-tribulationalism. But they were shaken because now they thought Paul was reversing his position because of this forged letter. So once you understand that problem verses 1 and 2, then you see why he gives the prerequisites for the day of the Lord. And he does that in verses 3 through 12. And what he says here is you're not in the day of the Lord. Because if you were in the day of the Lord, you would see five things, none of what you're seeing. Number one, you would see the apostasia in Greek, the departure. That hasn't happened yet. Verse 3. Number 2, you'd see the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, in the temple. Second part of verse 3 into verse 4. You haven't seen that yet. Number 3, you would see the removal of the restrainer. Verses 5 through 7. Haven't seen that yet, have you? No? No? Number four, you would see the destruction of the Antichrist followers, verses eight and nine. Have you seen that yet? No, haven't seen that yet, Paul. I think I misspoke there. Destruction of the lawless one, verses eight and nine, where he's going to be overthrown with the breath of Christ's mouth and the splendor of his coming. That hasn't happened yet. And then number five, you would see the destruction of the lawless one's followers, verses 10 through 12. So you haven't seen any of these things. So since you haven't seen any of these things, you're not in the tribulation period. So there's no need to be shaken from your composure. In spite of the forgery that you've received. So you can see each of these terms. I mean, what does this mean? The apostasy? What does that mean? The removal of the restrainer? I mean, what is that even talking about? Well, we're going to be spending some time going through each of these five to kind of flesh out, to define what each of these things mean. Because, you know, as Solomon said, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, you know, what what has been will be again. You wouldn't believe the number of people today and the number of people in church history that have gotten totally confused because they thought they were inside the tribulation period. There's always people that are setting dates for the return of Christ. Um, Anytime anybody gives you a specific date, uh, don't go for it. Don't take the bait because... Generally, what happens is the people that set the dates end up with egg on their face. You know, if I was going to set a date, you know what I would have done? Rather than pick, uh, let's see, what are we in, 2023? A lot of people are picking 2024, 2025. I mean, I would like pick a date after I was dead and gone. Because <laughs> at least I could cash in on the book royalties and then nobody could hold me accountable because by the time the date didn't happen, you know, I'd be long gone. So it's always amusing to me the people that set these dates like within the next 6 months it's going to happen and all this kind of stuff. Um just do some research on the Millerites, the Millerite movement. You know, they thought that they had some kind of scheme related to when Jesus was going to touch down on planet Earth and a lot they they quit their jobs, they went and lived like on a some removed area and they sat there and waited and the date came and went and it's called the great, in church history it's called the great disappointment. You know, they discredited their movement, they discredited the Lord, they, uh, caused all kinds of economic dislocation in their community, they were held up to ridicule and scorn, you know, the rest of their, their days because they they didn't study this passage that we're studying. So studying this passage protects you from all of that kind of insanity out there. So what is what does this first one mean? The apostasy. And of all the five on the list, this one is the most controversial because there's two views on it. What what the word Apostasia actually means in Greek is departure. Paul is saying you, you're not in the day of the Lord because the departure hasn't happened yet. And so the issue then becomes the departure from what? And there are two views on it. The dominant view out there is it's a departure from the word. It's like a doctrinal departure of some kind. The second view, which I represent and I believe is true, although it's not a majority view, is that it's not talking about a departure from the Word. It's talking about a departure from the world. In other words, it's talking about the physical, spatial departure Of the church from the earth, meaning that Paul is using the apostasia as a synonym for the rapture. Um, Synonym, different word, same meaning. And his point is very, very simple. Uh, Paul, we're, we've got this forged letter from you indicating we're in the day of the Lord yet, and Paul was just just asked the question, "Well, have you departed yet? Have you have you physically left the earth yet?" No, we haven't done that, Paul. Well, then you couldn't be in the day of the Lord, because I told you that would precede the day of the Lord, didn't I? So, it's very controversial. Um, I'm kind of saddened to say it's gotten kind of ugly where, you know, because I've taken this view um and I'll show you that this is not my view. Maybe I'm one of the first on social media to talk about it, but this this goes way back. Um it's it's a well uh traveled path, okay? And people, you know, if you if you teach that, they say you're you're a heretic and all that and they they make videos against you and they 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 do all this kind of stuff. They they call you all kinds of names. And and it's kind of sad for me to watch that happen because, you know, if you don't want to accept the view, great, you know, we can agree to disagree agreeably, can't we? I thought that's what Christianity was kind of about. Um, Why not just dismiss it as that's a minority view. I don't lean that way. Why not just say that? You know, why use the H word, you know, heretic, heresy, and all that kind of stuff. Um, to people that espouse it. So, let's talk about the first view for a minute. The, the majority view out there is this is a departure from the word. It's not, it's not, it's not a synonym for the rapture. And so, a lot of people will say, well this is, you know, and they quote it in all their books, when they write books on apostasies of, apostasy of the church. You know, they quote this verse and they say, this. what what this is, is it's just a description of the church kind of running off the rails at the end of the age. That has to come first. Now, do I believe that there are predictions in the Bible about the church running off the rails at the end of the age? You bet your bottom dollar. I believe that it's just not what this verse is talking about. That concept of the apostasy of the church is very well developed in First Timothy and Second Timothy later in Paul's ministry. But we're dealing with something very, very early in Paul's ministry. And consequently, what this view does is people say this is just the apostasy of the church is they force Paul to deal with a subject that he's not dealing with. I mean, if you want to write a book and preach a sermon on the last day's apostasy of the church, there is a, a plethora of Scripture that you could go to to learn about that. It's just not this one. This this is talking about something different. So what you'll see here is the order of Paul's letters. And almost everybody who brings up this view, this is the apostasy of the church, they don't really put Paul's orders letters excuse me in their right chronology so when 1st and 2nd Thessalonians was written that was AD 51 and he doesn't write about the apostasy of the church you know start making predictions about it until just prior to his death in the uh, pastoral letters so that so it's like they they grab um a topic that Paul deals with elsewhere Later in his ministry and they force him to deal with it here when they're asking a question of 2 Thessalonians that 2 Thessalonians is not really answering. So that's a problem, I think, with this first view that this is just a departure from the word. Well, then um, what is Paul talking about in 1 and 2 Thessalonians? What he's talking about is the return of Jesus. Didn't we make the point when we were going through 1 Thessalonians that every chapter ends with a reference to what? The return of Christ. And there's a very small distance of time between the two Thessalonian letters. So the dominant thought on Paul's mind early in his ministry, particularly as he's interacting with the Thessalonians and all their eschatological and prophetic issues is he's talking about the return of Christ he's not making bold predictions at this point about how the church is going to doctrinally run off the rails towards the end of the church age he'll do that later so the the departure from the word forces people are forcing Paul to deal with a subject early in his ministry that he really doesn't deal with early in his ministry he'll deal with that later in his ministry Another problem with this departure from the word concept, last day's apostasy of the church, is the adjective first. Proton in Greek. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, if you believe that the doctrinal departure of the church Has to happen first before the rapture. If you believe any prophetic thing has to happen first before the rapture, then you've just denied imminency. Because when we've taught the rapture, we've tried to make the case that the rapture, the way it's described, is an imminent event, it's signless. It could happen in the next split second there is no prophetic um, issue that has to happen before the rapture. So if anybody says, first this, then the rapture, you're denying the doctrine of imminency. When anybody says, well, the rapture has to happen on a Jewish feast day, and that's popular, people say that, Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. What you're saying is, well, if it has to happen on Rosh Hashanah, then it can't happen the rest of the year, right? So you're denying eminency because the rapture can happen at any moment. A lot of people today are saying, well, we're in the right time of the year where we're going to do high watch for the rapture. You know, We're in this specific section of the calendar, so it's high watch time for the rapture. And I'm saying every day is high watch time for the rapture, every single day because it, it could happen in the next split second. That's the doctrine of imminency. And so, you know, this is really important to understand because people in the climate that we're in, as we're moving into globalism and, you know, uh, CBDC, cashless society, all this kind of stuff, is what you have to understand is all of that stuff is is um, stage setting for the tribulation period. There's a ton of things that have to happen before Jesus returns in His second advent. But the rapture, which precedes the seven-year tribulation period, is not that way at all. It can happen at any moment. The reason I'm sort of interested in our movement into a cashless society, the New World Order, you know, I guess they're talking about now bringing back the mask mandates, well, we don't have a crisis uh, to bring them back. Okay, well, we'll create a crisis. We'll call it a climate crisis. Because, because you people, with all your driving, are causing this heat wave. You realize that, right? <laughs> so, the Biden administration appoints this this climate climate czar or whatever to give him advice about executive orders concerning when we need to lock down the economy again. So, all these things are going on. And I look at all that stuff and I say, wow, seven year tribulation period coming quick. Because that's what my Bible says is going to happen at the end of the age. There's going to be planet lockdown, uh, mark of the beast. But that has nothing to do with the rapture. What I say is that stuff is causing the seven-year tribulation period to come faster. Oh, and by the way, the Lord made me a promise about the rapture that he's coming before the seven-year tribulation period. So the rapture must be coming even faster because that can happen at any moment. So the best example I've ever heard on this is, um, I know it's August and it's hard to think about Christmas, but we are, if the rapture doesn't happen first, going to move into... November, right? And then December. And they put up the Christmas stuff in the stores like November 1st. (laughs) I mean, right when Halloween's over, boom. They must have a crew in there all night getting all that stuff out. And then they've got the Christmas stuff up and Santa Claus and all this kind of stuff, Christmas trees. And you look at all that and you say, wow, um, the signs of Christmas... Indicate that Thanksgiving is really near. See that? Because Thanksgiving occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas. So the signs of the tribulation period tell us that the rapture, which could happen at any moment, which precedes the tribulation period, is coming even faster. And if that's true, hmm, I, I guess I'm living on borrowed time as a Christian. I better get my act together. That's That's the effect these things are supposed to have on us. So all of these signs are signs for the seven-year tribulation period, which should heighten our interest in the rapture, but they are not signs for the rapture because the rapture is imminent. And so when somebody says the doctrinal departure of the church must happen first on this list, they're putting something into existence first prior to the rapture, which means they're denying eminency, the any-moment return of Christ. Beyond that, if this 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, if this is just talking about the last day's departure of the church, it's sort of interesting because Paul mentions it and he doesn't return to the subject later. So here is something from Gordon Olson, uh, who's with the Lord. He created, uh, he's a very good scholar, he created a new Bible translation called the Resurrection New Testament. And he has a note here on 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. He says, "...let no one in any way deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the departure comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction." The Greek apostasy means departure, as does the verb: apostasy, apostasy, a noun form, aphistomy, verb form, both coming from the same Greek root. The Greek apostasy means departure as does its verb form aphistomy, and it can refer to a physical departure, or a spiritual departure, or a rebellion. See, the word itself doesn't fix the problem because the word can mean different things depending upon the context in which it's used. You have to study out what the word means in this context. And he writes here, Gordon Olson, he says the rapture of Christians would be a physical departure which is supported by his announced subject in chapter 2, verse 1. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. What's Paul talking about? Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him. What is he talking about there? The rapture. He Remember the upper day that we talked about last time? Now we request. That's a tool that Paul uses to say he's changing subjects. He's no longer dealing with the judgment that unbelievers are going to face in chapter 1, now he switched subjects to the rapture. So is it too far-fetched to come up with a rapture interpretation of apostasia when that's Paul's context? Gordon Olson writes, the rapture of Christians would be a physical departure which is supported by his announced subject in chapter 2, verse 1. Otherwise, Paul never returned to his declared topic in a lapse of thought which raises questions. So in other words, if you make this about the doctrinal departure of the church, Paul raises a topic kind of in a tangential way, but he never returns and deals with it in this chapter. Now, if this is the rapture, the apostasia, then he raises the issue in chapter 2, verse 3a. But then he returns to his subject matter in verses 6 and 7 when he talks about the removal of the restrainer. The removal of the restrainer is we're going to be unpacking as well as the departure are both speaking of the rapture. So he deals with the subject makes a a brief break in his thoughts, and then he'll return to it later. If you make this about the doctrinal departure of the church, you've got Paul introducing something which he never returns to. And Gordon Olson says that would be uncharacteristic of Paul. I bring these things up because what people do is they spend all their time um, attacking or criticizing this, the physical departure view. And it's like you listen to him talk and, you, and I say, okay, I know what you're against. You've made that very clear. What are you for? I mean, if you don't believe this is a rapture, you know, you tell me what it's talking about. And they don't really spend a lot of time developing their own view because their own view makes worse sense. That's, that's my point I'm trying to get at. So it's kind of like a diversion tactic. You know, let's criticize, criticize, criticize the physical spatial view and all the time attention is being taken away from what, well what do you believe? And when you actually figure out what they believe, their their view does, their, makes far less sense than the rapture interpretation. That's why many of us, Dr. Thomas Ice, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, others that I could talk about, Dr. Don, uh, Don Stewart, are sort of dissatisfied with the traditional interpretations of this passage. It's kind of forced us to look elsewhere. Um, a lot of people will say this, okay, I'm pre-trib, and I believe the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation period. But what this is talking about is it's a departure after the rapture occurs. Now think about that for a minute. Does that make any real sense? Because after the rapture occurs, the only people left on the earth are the Who? The unsaved. And what they'll try to tell you is this is the unsaved departing doctrinally. Now, just a quick question. What do the unsaved have to depart from? You following me? So going on and on against the physical, spatial departure of the church, but not explaining that point well, leaves me with question marks. I understand that with my view, there are problems. That's not the issue. The issue is which view has the fewest problems. And if that's the best you can come up with as your alternative, I'm just not happy with that. Because what you're saying, if this is some kind of doctrinal departure post-rapture, what you're saying is all the believers have left The only people left on planet Earth are unsaved people, and they're the ones departing by following the Antichrist when they don't have anything to depart from. That's what apostasy means. It means departure. So I pulled this out of my seminary notes. This is from my professor, um, Robert Leitner, uh, Lewis Barry Chafer, talks about this, and he has a section called God's Estimate of the Lost. When God looks at lost people, what does he see? He sees, and there's the verses in parenthesis. Um, this is the current state of the lost without Jesus. And there's the verses in parenthesis that support each point. Number one, he calls them lost Luke 19 verse 10. Number two, he calls them perishing. They're already perishing. John 3 16. Number three, he calls them condemned. It's, it's not like they're gonna die and stand before the Lord and be condemned. They're already condemned. Now how does a person that's already condemned depart from the Lord? You follow? He calls them John three nineteen through twenty one lovers of darkness and evil. He calls them John three thirty six under divine wrath. They're already under God's wrath, and it's like a sword of Diamocles waiting to fall. But they're already under judgment. He calls unbelievers John three thirty six without spiritual life. Can I don't understand how a person without spiritual life can apostatize. When to apostatize means to depart. Depart from what? You've got nothing to apostatize from. He calls unbelievers of their father the devil. John 8.44. They're working for Satan. They don't even know it. He calls them dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1. He calls them demonically energized, Ephesians 2 verse 2. Wow, this is not very politically correct teaching, Pastor. I'm glad we're finished with that slide. Well, cheer up, we've got one more here. <laughs> he calls them depraved, Ephesians 2 verse 3. He calls them doomed, Ephesians 2 verse 3. He, he, several verses on this, they're already held captive by satanic powers. They're unable to receive truth. They, they, they can be convicted of their need to respond to Christ and trust in Him, but don't expect them to absorb, you know, I mean, don't expect unbelievers to be happy at Sugarland Bible Church. What? You teach the Bible for two hours? Don't you realize the game is on or entertainment? I mean, an unbeliever just will not receive truth. They are under control of Satan's world system, first John five verse nineteen, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. They're filled with unrighteousness, Romans one twenty nine through thirty two. They are unable to seek God, absent his conviction of them, which does go out into the world, but if that didn't happen, who could who could be saved? Who could seek God? When I got saved, I thought I was seeking God, but really it was God that was seeking me, in hindsight. They're conceived in iniquity. They've got a sin nature. Not when they, you know, do their first bad thing. I mean, what was your first sin you ever committed? I mean, I sort of remember mine. Um, I kept a... <laughs> do I need to even talk about this? <laughs> I kept a book longer at the library than I should have I had a really terrible childhood (laughs) real rebel but I remember doing that and knowing that I was doing that and I remember uh, I felt kind of bad about that but you see I didn't I didn't come under the judgment of God when I did that as a little kid I I came under the judgment of God at the point of conception The fact that I was stealing books, we can call it that, I guess, from the library, I was just acting on my sin nature. My first sin didn't make me a sinner. Rather, I sinned naturally because I am a sinner. I received that sin nature at the point of conception, Psalm 51, verse 5. And the unbelievers are desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. See, and this becomes a problem for the second view, I think, because if you're against this being the rapture, but you're pre-trib and you're telling me that after the rapture occurs, this level of departure is going to happen, who is departing then if all the unbelievers have left the earth? It's the unbelievers doing this. But you see, the unbelievers foundationally, fundamentally, have nothing to depart from. Another view that's sort of floating around out there that's popular is people say, well, this is a departure from the Word, but it's talking about the nation of Israel departing from the Word. And they say Daniel 9.27, which is the prophetic event that will start the tribulation period. They will say, well, when Israel enters into the peace treaty when antichrist enters into the peace treaty or the it's some kind of treaty it's some kind of agreement it's it's from daniel 9:27 he 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 confirms a covenant he does something where he enters into some kind of agreement with the jewish people and people say well that's the event that starts the tribulation period correct and they say well that covenant is a synonym for the rapture uh, the apostasy rather So they argue that this is Israel apostatizing by entering into this peace treaty with the Antichrist is their their position. Well, to that position, I think it has the problem of the former position because the nation of Israel at that point is unsaved. They're in unbelief. And this would make a unsaved nation entering into a treaty and apostatizing when they have nothing to apostatize from. They're already unsaved. The thing to understand about this is Israel has committed the unpardonable sin. Matthew twelve twenty-four. This is what the first century leadership did. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, of Jesus, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And the moment that Israel's leadership did that is the moment God said, I'm done with this generation of Israelis. Can an individual Jew be saved? Of course. But as far as a nation, I'm finished. AD seventy is coming. Your temple is going to be destroyed. It's irreversible. And so, and that, and that becomes a big game changer in Matthew's gospel. No longer is the kingdom being offered to that generation. God is now raising up the church, and He'll offer that kingdom to a subsequent generation, yet future. And the moment they did that, the nation of Israel went into judicial blindness nationally. Because Matthew chapter 12 is followed by Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus starts to describe this judicial blindness that Israel is now under. And they have been under this judicial blindness for 2,000 years. Look at Matthew 13 and look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, therefore I speak to them in parables. Wait a minute, why is he talking in parables now? He certainly didn't give the Sermon on the Mount in parables. He's talking in parables now because the nation of Israel won't receive truth. A parable is designed to reveal uh, to conceal and to reveal. He's now hiding truth from the nation. For, actually for their good because to whom much is given much is what Required. And if they're not going to receive Him, if He just kept giving them more truth and more truth and more truth, the only thing that would have done is it would have enhanced their, their punishment on the day of judgment. Because whom much is given, much is expected. So this is actually merciful what Jesus did. He started talking in parables to hide the truth from the nation, which He wasn't doing at the beginning of the book. He was offering them the kingdom. A parable is designed to conceal but to reveal. He's revealing it to a little group, a remnant of believers, a minority. Therefore I speak to them in parables, Matthew 13, verse 13, because while seeing, they do not see. This is the nation. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then he quotes Isaiah 6. This is what God said to Isaiah when Isaiah was being commissioned for the ministry. In in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, dull, With their ears, they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. Question, how does a nation like that experiencing judicial judgment apostatize? They have nothing to apostatize from. Apostasy is a departure from known truth. There is no known truth for them to leave. They're already under judicial blindness. Um, Can you go over to Romans 10 for a minute? Romans 10. Verse 21. Paul speaking of Israel. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. How does a a nation that's already disobedient, already obstinate, having already committed the unpardonable sin, under judicial blindness, apostatize? I mean, when they enter into the contract, the covenant, whatever you want to call it, with the Antichrist, that's not apostasy. That's them acting out their unbelief, which already exists. You follow? Look at Romans 11, verses 7 through 10, judicial hardening of the nation. Paul says, what then? What Israel is seeking... See, the context is Israel. And I know that because I see the word Israel in the passage. Can I get an amen to that? What then, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. It's just as it is written. God gave them over to a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see... um, not and ears not to hear down to this very day see that what they did by attributing Christ's miracles to Belzebub because they couldn't they couldn't deny the miracle so they just said well Satan did it because they didn't they said this man will not reign over us is what they said So i got to explain the miracle some way because he just performed a miracle right before our eyes. Oh, he obviously did that through the power of the devil. And God says, finish with you as a nation, this generation. Yeah, I'll extend my grace to a subsequent generation, but not this one. What you've done is irreversible and the consequences will reverberate right down to the present day. This is why the nation of Israel today is an unbelieving nation because of what happened in Matthew chapter 12. Certainly an individual Jew could get saved today. We've had Olivier Melnick here. Uh, Paul the Apostle was saved. But that's not the majority. uh, This is a minority. The majority has already been given over to a spirit of stupor and blindness. My point is they have nothing to apostatize from. Even if they enter into the deal of the century with the Antichrist. Uh, Romans 11, verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. Retribution to them, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So this, this view here that, well, this is the apostasy of Israel in the tribulation period when they enter into a peace treaty of some kind with the Antichrist. That's the apostasia spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. Well, that can't work. Because like view number 2, they have nothing to apostatize from because they're already judicially blind. So however you try to plug this in and make this something other than the rapture, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, it creates more problems than it solves. And that's why a lot of us started looking elsewhere. There must be some other interpretation of this rather than the traditional views. Uh, it was my professor, J. Dwight Pentecost, who started talking to me about, well, this could be a synonym for the rapture. He was looking elsewhere. So I first heard this view that I'm going to give you, that this is a synonym for the rapture from him. So it's not my view. <laughs> Maybe I've popularized it a little bit, but this is a well-trodden path, you know, that we're going to start to walk through here. So I believe that this is not a departure from the world. I think this is a departure from the word. Excuse me, I had that backwards, didn't I? This is not a departure from the word. This is a departure from the world. So as the Thessalonians are panicking that they believe they're in the day of the Lord, Paul is is it 's just it's it's so simple what he 's saying is he's saying you 're not in the day of the Lord cause the departure i e the rapture hasn 't happened yet that 's his point that 's his point in bringing up the apostasia or the departure. if that view is correct, then it settles the rapture debate because people for two hundred years have been debating. Not the rapture, but the timing. The top of the screen is pre-tribulationalism, which we think is the correct view. Some say it's, no, it's in the middle of the tribulation. Some people say it's the end. Some say it's three quarters into the tribulation period. Well, views number two, three, four, and five don't work anymore because the departure has to happen proton, adjective proton, first. If the departure happens first, then we're all pre tribulationist right? What's there to discuss? I mean, you got a crystal clear passage. And that's why people that have already invested themselves into these other positions don't like the view. Because if it's right, there's nothing to discuss. You can't be mid-trib because the departure has to happen first can't be post-trip because the departure has to happen first. The departure has to happen before everything else um, on that list. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia, the departure, comes first. Well, if the departure comes before the advent of the lawlessness and all of these other things mentioned on this list, then... Suddenly you've got an open and shut case for pre-tribulationism. The debate is now settled. Now notice the words of Mark Hitchcock who does not agree with my position that I'm going to share with you on this. He wrote a book on the apostasy of the church. Great book by the way. He uses 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 as one of his proofs. And then he has a footnote explaining why some people think this is the rapture, but it's not the rapture, it's the apostasy of the church. I want you to, I want you to watch what he says, because he's clearly a committed pre-tribulationalist who does not accept the physical spatial departure interpretation. He says, since the word apostasia means departure, some have understood the term apostasy to be the physical departure of the church itself. That's me. That is the rapture. Since the rapture will be a physical departure of believers from the earth. If this view were correct, and he's saying it's not correct, I'm saying it is correct. Not correct. Is correct. Not correct. Is correct. All right, I've got the microphone. It's correct. (laughs) If if this view were correct, it would definitely place the rapture before the tribulation period. And he uses a basketball analogy, which would be a slam dunk. Let's call it like a reverse dunk or something. It would be a slam dunk for the pre-tribulational rapture position. That's what he's saying. If those guys are right on the physical departure view, then it's pre-trib. That's that's his point. But I don't believe that. I believe it's the apostasy of the church because I wrote a book on the apostasy of the church. And I need this verse. Um, so I want people to understand with this quote that Mark Hitchcock gives that the pre-trib view does not rise or fall on the interpretation of this verse that I'm going to provide. You can reject this interpretation and still be pre-tribulational. Mark Hitchcock has. As has probably the guy that did more than any other person that I can think of to really popularize pre-tribulationalism into evangelical circles through his scholarly work, John Walvard. If you know that name, there's, you're probably hard-pressed to find anybody that did more to advance the cause of pre-tribulational rapturism than John Walvard. John Walvard does not agree with the view that I'm espousing my understanding is early he did but then he came under the influence of a scholar whose last name is hebert and he moved away from a rapture understanding of second thessalonians 2 verse 3 mark hitchcock friend and colleague who i agree with on practically everything except this is following walvard who's following hebert So it's kind of interesting to watch the other camps operate. They they try to tear down the physical departure interpretation of this verse, not understanding that there's a lot of pre-tribulationalists that don't believe this, and they're still pre-trib. So pre-tribulationalism does not rise or fall, according to the interpretation that I'm going to provide for you. But if it's right, it's certainly a slam dunk. That's the point. If it's right, there's nothing to discuss anymore. The departure comes first. So what I'm going to give you are ten reasons um, why the physical departure view is correct. Here's the first five. There's verses 6 through 10, and we're going to do all those right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and it's one of those things where you're, you're looking at the weight of the evidence. I don't think any arg- one argument seals the deal. You have to look at all ten arguments cumulatively. And at the end of the day, I think the evidence tips in favor of the physical departure view. I have a little booklet that I've written on it that is not written for scholars. It's written for people that just want to understand this. Um, And you could read that in one sitting. And we're going to, our church bought a bunch of these. And so we're going to be providing that for you um, next week. And then after we walk through these 10 reasons, I'm going to entertain the inter- objections because there's about five or six objections that people raise against it. And so that's why we're camping a little bit in our Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 study on chapter 2 verse 3a. I'm not just bringing these things up willy-nilly, but they're part of our verse-by-verse progress through Second Thessalonians. So... Uh, that is where we're moving. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word. Help us to rightfully handle your word um, in, the, in the last days correctly. And we'll be careful, even on a controversial passage. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Happy intermission.